Well, good morning, Grace. Hey, my name is Ben Clawson, and man, I'm pumped to be back here with you guys. Um, I was the guy who got to give up and get up and give the Romans 2 sermon, talking about God's wrath a couple of weeks ago, uh, but Jacob let me come back, so it's a joy to be here with you guys. You might notice that we don't have any of the banners back here this morning, and that means that we're taking a break in the Roman series. We're taking a break, and we're looking at an issue that Rob just spoke about a minute ago, that this is such a dangerous time for us to grow weary and faint-hearted in our faith. So we just want to take a minute and fix our eyes on Jesus, our King. You with me? Man, well, I want to open up and take us, before we go to the scripture, I want to take us to the country of Australia. I want to go to Australia. Every year there, there's this ultra-marathon. And I don't know if you've ever heard of or ran, maybe, an ultra-marathon, but that's a one that is 543.7 miles. 543.7 miles. That's a long race. And your typical runner is kind of what you would assume. It's like a 28-year-old who trains night and day constantly for this race. It's the fittest of the fit. And they show up and they run this race. And the pattern that they run is they run for, for 18 hours and then they sleep for six. They run for 18 hours, sleep for six. For six days, constantly, they're running for 18 hours. They eat while they run. It's insane. 543.7 miles. Well, in, in 1984, a man named Cliff Young showed up to run this race. And Cliff wasn't what you would describe as your typical ultramarathon runner. He showed up, and he had on his work boots, he had on a pair of jeans, and he had a windbreaker on, and he was 61 years old and looked like this. This is Cliff. And he rolled up and said, hey, I want to run this race. And they, everyone who's like in charge of it is like, we can't, we can't let this guy run, try and run 543.7 miles this is like bad, bad news. But he, he sort of explains. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm good. I didn't have much money growing up, and I lived on a farm, and my family had a bunch of sheep. So the way that we herded these sheep was instead of using sheep dogs, which we couldn't afford, I did it. So I would just run through the fields night and day for days on end and chase the sheep. I was a living sheep dog. So he said, I'm ready to run this race. And of course, if you're an announcer in that moment, that's just hilarious. So they're like eating Cliff's story up and they're like, no way that this guy can actually do it. But he signs up and he does it and they let him start. So they all take off. All the runners take off. They've started this race. And you don't run 500 miles at a fast pace by any means. But the runners take off and a few hours later, when they go to track everyone, they see that Cliff is literally hours behind everyone. He's hours behind because he's doing this little shuffle. I'll demonstrate it to you. He's kind of doing like this. He's not even moving his arms. That, it was 1984, so there's no video of it, unfortunately. But he's just doing this little... i got to demonstrate. So he's doing that little shuffle, and he gets way behind all of the other runners. And so they're doing these specials. They're like, look at all the runners, and then look at Cliff. Oh. But here's the thing. Cliff doesn't know the typical pattern of these runners. So when they hit the pillow at night... Cliff keeps on running through the night for five days and wins the ultramarathon, setting the record by 19 hours. (laughs) And currently, if you look online, who holds the record for the fastest ultramarathon of all time? It's this guy. It's this guy. (laughs) And now, literally, runners do this. 
if you look at ultramarathons, you see that everyone's doing this because it's the most efficient way to run. You can run for five days straight. It's insane. Everyone hates him because now they have to not sleep for these ultramarathons. <laughs> so basically, at the very end of this race, they're interviewing him and they're saying, all these, I'm sure, embarrassed reporters, they're saying, Cliff, how did you do it? And he looks in the camera and says, just didn't stop. I just, I just didn't stop, is what he tells them. That's his only advice on how he actually finished this race. And Grace, I, I shared that story because I think some of us might need to say the same exact thing today. I think that we're all in need of something that Cliff had a lot of, and it's endurance. It's endurance. The biblical word for endurance is this word, hupumone. Hupumone. And what that means is to come up under something, to bear up under some weight, and to just stay there, to never, ever leave from under this weight. But we know that the natural human inclination when things get hard is to leave, is to run in the opposite direction, is to get out. But that's not what the word endurance is, is referring to. And the verses that we're reading today, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, are referring to our lives, to our faith as a race, a race that is pursuing Jesus. And we know that there are two things that are true of this race. The first one is this. At the end of this race is a prize. If you have trusted in Jesus, if you've put your faith in Jesus, at the end of our race, there's this prize, and it's to stand before the throne of God, before God the Father, and to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Can you imagine? But we know another thing's true of this race, and it's that it's hard. It's that a lot of times races are really, really exhausting and brutal, and the easiest thing to do when you're running a race is just to give up sometimes, is to quit. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you, does anyone in this room like feel this right now? Like maybe you've opened up your Bible like five times this week and you've gotten nothing out of it. And to open, up, open it up one more time is just like, oh man, I'm exhausted. Or like you've said no to that, things that, you're, that thing that your friends have been trying to pressure you into a bunch of times and you're just exhausted and tired of it. Or like that temptation would just be so easy to say yes to, but saying no to it is just exhausting. I don't know what the things are that, are that are coming at you right now that are endangering you of growing weary and faint-hearted, but I think all of us have something in our lives, and we just need to look at those things and say exactly what Cliff said. I'm just not going to stop. I will run this race with endurance. So today we're in Hebrews 12 through 3. If you can join me there, that'd be awesome. And we're just going to see two critical, incredibly important things that we have to do if we're going to finish this semester out strong, if we're going to run the race that is before us with endurance, with biblical endurance. So if you have a Bible, join me there right now. As you're turning, let me give you a little background to the book of Hebrews. So we actually aren't certain who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's an undetermined author, but we know from context clues that he was writing to a group of Jewish believers who had been persecuted. They had been facing a lot of hardship. They had been persecuted. Many of them had, in fact, been killed, which we know from chapter 10. So he writes this in the same way that the author of Romans, uh, Paul, writes to, Rome, or writes to the Romans to encourage them. And the way that he does it is he just talks about Jesus. He just talks about Jesus. So Hebrews makes much of Jesus. And then this chapter, we look in chapter 10, and he says, the author begins to say, remember that time that everything was crazy and you're being persecuted? Well, good news. Remember the future. Remember that God has eyes on the future, and the future is ruled by a Jesus who's coming to make all things right. So we can trust in that. We can remember that. 
And he encourages them with that. And then the entire next chapter, chapter 11 of Hebrews, if you know it, is known as the great faith chapter. The hall of faith is what some people call it. And it gives us these examples of people who lived by faith, who pursued the Lord well in the Old Testament. And then that brings us up to the beginning of chapter 12, which just says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us look Sorry, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you do not grow weary and faint-hearted. So I want to just look briefly right back at verse 1, one more time. I just want to read it for us one more time. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Grace, the first thing that you and me need to do, we have to do to run the race set before us with endurance, is lay down. Is lay down. Now let me explain what I mean by that. If you look back at the verses, the first, ver- or the first word that it uses is therefore. It says therefore. And what that does is it connects us to the previous verses, to chapter 11. So he's saying, therefore, since you're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So you might wonder, like, hey, what what does he mean by so great a cloud of witnesses? Um, And what he's saying here is not what a lot of people assume, that there are people sitting up in these stands watching you, watching your faith, watching you run out. But one uh, biblical scholar named Constable puts it this way, no New Testament writers ever used the word witness to mean spectators, but to indicate that there are people whose lives are fantastic examples of how to live life fully and faithfully pursuing God. So in light of this, the next words are incredibly encouraging. He says, let us also. The author is saying that exactly what the Old Testament people were able to do Let us also, we also are capable and able of living lives fully and faithfully in pursuit of our King Jesus. Let us also. And how do we do it? He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. We have to lay down the things that make us run our races ineffectively, slowly. I used to live with this guy named Drake, and Drake was in Teeks, which is the firefighting school that exists at Blinn. A lot of people don't know that it exists, but it's actually like one of the best in the world. Fun fact. Um, And Drake was at this firefighting school, and he was a guy who worked not a lot on this, but a lot on, you know, this. So he was a, a pretty, like, big, jacked guy. But one of the requirements for this firefighting school for their class was that they all run a seven minute mile. So they laid this goal in front of a bunch of, bunch of like pretty jacked firefighters, and they were like, uh-oh. <laughs> so Drake started training, and he trained like crazy. And at the end of the semester, finally they got to this moment where a bunch of firefighters run, and they finally get to the end, and they run it just under seven minutes. They're all high-fiving. Yeah, great job. Great job, everybody. And then their coaches or professors look at them, and they say, okay, great job. Now hear your... Uh, firefighting boots, your flame-proof pants, your flame-proof jacket, your helmet, an oxygen mask, an oxygen tank, and a hose. Now go do it again. And they were like, how are we supposed to run with all this weight? Know what I'm saying? How are we supposed to run with all this weight? And let me just say this. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying as well. 
He's saying that you cannot have weights and sins clinging to you and run the race that's been set before you effectively. So we have to lay down some weights and sins. How do we do it? How do we do it? I think we need two things. I think we need perception and we need planning. We need perception and we need a plan. Here's what I mean by that. Think about the Pharisees, the group of people during Jesus' day uh, who walked around and were self-righteous. They thought they were good in God's standards and God's eyes, because not because of the work of Jesus, but because of their work. They thought they had done enough to be perfect in God's eyes, the Pharisees. So what they did was they walked around and they said, sinner, 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 sinner. And they called out the sins of everyone else. But then Jesus came on the scene and he started criticizing him. And he was like, hey, you're the worst of them all. And the issue with the Pharisees was that they could not perceive their own sins. They couldn't look inside of themselves and see that they had sin. And I think the same thing happens for us a lot of the times. I was just thinking about how it works for me. How I feel like lately I've been talking about people in such a way that I feel like, oh, I just got to get it off my chest. And I think so many people do this. I just got to say this thing. I just got to say it. Listen how ridiculous this is. Um, and I don't realize that what I'm doing is gossip. What I'm doing is, is slandering someone else. I think that we often don't know that our attitudes about school are lazy and indifferent, and that's not honoring to God's desire for us to work heartily at everything as though it was the Lord that we were doing Him for. It makes me think of Psalm 51.3. It says this, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. And it just makes me ask this question, Is my sin ever before me? Do I see my sin? Do I know what it is? Or is it hidden, and am I therefore not able to do anything about it? One of the best ways to take on this sin is how Pastor Tim Keller describes it. He says that we need to give our family, our our best friends, our community, our spouses, we've got to give them a hunting license for the sin in our lives. We've got to give them full permission to target and see the sin that exists in us and to take it down. Not just so that they can judge us or find themselves better than us, but so that they can help us in love to take down the sins that exist around us. Man, it's good for us to have people around us who do that for us. If the Pharisees had had that, I can't imagine how much more helpful it it would have been for them. So we've got to call out the sins that exist around us. We've got to perceive our sins. But he doesn't just say sins, he says weights as well. And weights are a, are a little bit trickier to, to perceive and to call out. There's this infamous story about my friend Justin. In the seventh grade, Justin ate lemon pound cake and milk for breakfast before an all-day basketball tournament. <laughs> and the story goes that when the first fast break happened down the court, everyone's running back and forth. Justin lets the guy he was supposed to be covering score because he's throwing up in the trash can. Duh. <laughs> now, was, it, was Justin's decision to eat pound cake and milk for breakfast morally wrong? No, it, there's no morality to breakfast, I don't, I don't think. <laughs> but it really didn't help him run. It really, really didn't help Justin run effectively. And I think sins, I mean, I think weights are the same. They're in, this, they're in this weird category. There's moral things, there's immoral things, and there's amoral things. Things that are kind of in the middle where there's no morality to, but that hinder you. They slow you down. When I was researching this idea, I was like, man, I wonder how Americans spend their free time statistically. And I found these numbers that were just really convicting, and I'm going to share them with you. This is what they say. The population as a whole 
this was a research study done this year. The population as a whole spends one hour and 14 minutes on social media every single day, which is about eight and a half hours per week, which is almost 19 days a year. Whoop. <laughs> American households, on average, watch five hours and four minutes of TV per day. This includes streaming services, which is about 35 and a half hours per week, which is just over 77 days a year. Oh, <laughs> and listen, I'm not condemning these, these things or saying, so throw your phones away, TV's in the garbage or anything like that. I mean, this past week, I watched the Astros tragically lose the World Series on TV for a lot of hours. I'm sorry I brought that up. I'm as heartbroken <laughs> as you are. Trust me. Oh, man, I was at game seven. Oh, I was sad. <laughs> sorry, I'm still not over it. And social media allows us to keep up with people around us. On Facebook and Instagram, I know what a lot of my family and friends are doing because I keep up with them on those things. So I'm not saying we've got we've to lay down those things completely. By no means am I saying that. But here's the question. Do these things slow down your run? Do you spend more time studying scripture or keeping up a Snapchat streak? Do you spend more time trying to, trying to build up a fortress in Fortnite or, or the kingdom of God? Man, do you spend more time watching The Office on Netflix? Not long, thanks to CBS. Or studying your Bible? Do you spend more time trying to be like that person on Instagram or like that Jesus in the Bible? Man, these things, and I'm not just saying these to you, I'm saying these to me because I am super convicted by these points as well. But here's the point. We've got to have perception to look around us, to see the weights and sins that are holding us back, and to target them. But we can't just have perception. We've got to have a plan We've got to have a plan to take these things down. We've got to know how to lay them down. And as I was preparing for this, I was just, I convicted, the scripture convicted me so much. And I was like, man, I'm not doing a good job of this. I, I noticed that I, that I come home in the evening sometimes and catch up with my wife for 30 minutes. And then we spend time looking at Instagram for the next 30 minutes or catching up on Facebook, that type of thing, for a while. And I was just like, I'm missing an opportunity to pursue my wife in this, in this instance. So I just deleted Instagram, and it's been gone for two weeks. It's a weight that I was able to lay down and get off of me. And I think some of us might need to do the exact same to liberate ourselves in this way. And it's a hard thing to do alone. I've got a group of guys that meets up every Tuesday morning at 6.30, or very early. And we have a goal together of running our races with endurance. So what we do is we confess what the weights and the sins are in our life, and we, we develop a plan. We say, hey, how can we take these down together? And then we pray for one another and catch up throughout the week and say, hey, how is it going? And I think all of us need that. We need a plan to take these things down. So the question that I just want all of us to ask ourselves this morning, right now, to look within is to say this, what is one thing that I can lay down this week? What's just one thing that you can lay down this week in this sort of way? Maybe it's Snapchat or Instagram or Netflix. I don't know what yours is. But man, I, I think if, you, if we do this, I know from experience that it liberates us and opens an opportunity to more faithfully and effectively pursue Jesus who is worthy of all our attention and all our affection. So I hope that we will. So let's, let's just look right back at these verses and see what they say again. It says that, it says that therefore... After we lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, let us run the race that is set before us with endurance. It's only after you lay things down that you can run with endurance. 
So let's look and see what the other thing that the author of Hebrews tells us to do here is. He says to looking, he says that we are looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Grace, the second thing, critical thing that we have to do to run our races with endurance is look up. We can't just lay down. We've got to look up to Jesus. Look up to Jesus. So if you look back at these verses, I want you to notice what the author is causing us to do. What he does in chapter 11 is he causes us to look around. We're looking around at all of these faithful examples through the Old Testament, people who have run well, and then he causes us to look in. He says, he points our attention to the cloud of witnesses, and then he tells us we need to lay things aside. So he makes us look out, and then he makes us look in. And then what he finally does, most importantly, is say, as he says, look up. So our eyes have gone in, they've gone out, and they've gone up now, most importantly. And ultimately, if we lay down weights and sins, it's not going to be enough. If we just become better, more productive people with less weights on us, then this has been nothing more than a feel-good message. Go out and be more productive. Be better. But that's not what these verses are saying. They're not saying go out and just be better. It's go out and be a better follower of, of Jesus, someone who faithfully pursues him. There's the story of this guy named Lex Gillette. Uh, Lex was a fantastic athlete growing up, and he actually ended up losing his eyesight when he was eight years old. So he looks like this. Where's my super suit? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I I couldn't help it. Um, And Lex uh, kept running, though. He, He was this athlete who loved running, and he just refused to stop. He refused to let his blindness keep him back. Um, so he actually started and become, became a really amazing athlete. He was a Paralympic long jumper, actually, which I don't know if you know much about the long jump, but it's, you run on this narrow track for a long way, and then you jump and leap into this narrow sand pit, and you try and get as far as you possibly can. That's something that I feel like a little bit uncomfortable doing with perfect eyesight. So to do it blind is just kind of terrifying. With a blindfold on your eyes and no ability to see is terrifying. But Lex does it, and he's actually a gold medalist, which is amazing. So when people ask how he does it, this is what he explains. He says, I I only do it by the help of my guide. His pattern is he stands at the beginning, he stands at the starting line of this thing, and then he's got a guy, a best friend, who stands down at this end, and he claps. And he yells, run, 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 fly! And then right when he yells fly, Lex jumps through the air and lands in the sand. So he has complete faith in this guide to get him where he needs to go. Lex is able to find massive success when his attention is undividedly fixed on his guide. And I think the exact same is true for us with Jesus. So we can't just lay things down. We've got to look up to Jesus. It's not helpful to just lay things down. We've got to look up. So how do we do it? How do we do it? If we've already laid something down, we've, we've got this margin. If we had a time filler right here and we've laid it down, now we've got, this, we've got this margin. We've got an opportunity to fill it with looking up to Jesus. So the question that I want us all to ask is, how are we going to do it? How can we do that? I've known people who have, uh, to add more time to, to pray into their schedule, they've laid down music for a couple of weeks. So they get in their car, they drive, it's just them and silence and the Lord. And it's fantastic. 
I remember hearing Greg Mott at Breakaway say that he put a, put a sleeping bag at the end of his bed. So he knew right when he got out and right when he got into his bed, it prompted him to get on his knees and pray to the Lord. Maybe for some of us, it's just starting to read a gospel, to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and say, to fix our eyes on Jesus and say, Jesus, what is your life? How do you live and why do you live it that way? And to just open up a journal and say, today is lessons from Jesus. To look up to Jesus somehow or another. And maybe, I don't know what it is for you, but I think baking in time to our schedules to look up to Jesus is one of the best things that we could possibly do. One of the best things that we could possibly do with our lives. So we've, we've talked a lot about the, sort of about the how of doing these things. How to lay things down. How to look up to Jesus. But what I want to do with these last few minutes, minutes is just devote some time to the why. To the why of why we do this in the first place. So let's just look right back at these verses. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why do we look to Jesus? Because he is the founder and perfecter of these things. We have examples. We have a cloud of witnesses in chapter 11. But here's the deal with every single one of them. They were imperfect. They messed up. They had moments that they slipped up. But Jesus is the absolute contrast to that. He's the founder and he's the perfecter of our faith. He's not just a member of our faith. He's the founder of our faith. He's not just an object of our faith. He's the author of our faith. He's not just a runner in this race. He's the finisher He didn't just participate in it, he perfected it. And let me tell you this, he was the perfect example of biblical endurance, of that hupomone that we're trying to achieve in our lives today. How do I know that? Because when he started his ministry, in the beginning, when Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness by the enemy, he endured it. He endured. When he started preaching in his own family, thought he was crazy, he endured. When his own disciples started to started to doubt what he was saying, he endured it. When the Pharisees taunted and ridiculed him, he endured it. When crowds of people doubted his truthfulness, he endured. When Judas, one of his own followers, started to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, he endured it. When he pleaded in the Garden of Gethsemane for his father to take the cup of death away from him, he endured it. When they came and arrested him, he endured it. And when they put him before Pilate and he stood on trial and stood innocent, but stood guilty at the same time, he endured it. When they started to beat him and mock him and scorn him, he endured it. And when he carried his cross, he endured it. And then when he hung on that cross for hours, he endured it. And when he breathed out out his last breath and said, it is finished, Jesus Christ endured to the very end. And then when he was in the grave for three days, Jesus endured it. But Grace, we're not worshiping a God who is dead, a God who's in some grave. We're worshiping the Jesus who rose victoriously from that grave, enduring it to the very end. Amen? Come on. So we're worshiping that God today, and he said that if we want his death to cover our death, we just have to put our faith and our trust in that Jesus, in that Jesus. So I hope that we can be people who walk out of here and look up to the one who laid down everything. The one who laid down everything. There's one more, there's one more story about, about Cliff's life that I want to share with you. There's, the, there's this example of a time that, um, and I'll close with this, that Cliff was just running and he uh, lost attention of his guide. 
his guide started saying, he was clapping and yelling, run, run, run. And he said, no, no, no. He started yelling, no, no, you're going the wrong direction. He was just like an inch off. And what Cliff did is he flew through the air and he landed on the concrete behind the pit of sand. He landed on the concrete. And he hurt himself really bad. He bruised up his back and his side, all of it. And he had to be taken and rushed away to the hospital. Cliff lost sight of his guide and he messed up because of it. And here's the thing that I just want to recognize with all of us. Maybe, maybe you feel that way today. Maybe you feel like what you've done is you've lost, you've gotten off track. You've jumped a little inaccurately. You've lost sight of your guide. Maybe you feel like there's some weight or there's some sin that's too big. Maybe you're exhausted by, by everything that's been going on in your life, swirling, and you feel like you just maybe even haven't been running your race well at all. Maybe you feel like that. Let's just look right back one more time at at verse 11. Verse 11. It says that for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What the author is saying is what's on the other side of this pain, of this hurtful process is the peaceful fruit of righteousness so I don't know where you're at right now in this moment but I just want you to realize that what's on the other side if we fix our eyes on Jesus is the peaceful fruit of righteousness for Lex right after this concrete incident he was such a fierce competitor that he said I want to go back and I want to do it again so he went back to this track after getting tested out at the hospital and he jumped in and he ran. And he succeeded and he actually won gold that time. But he was only able to do it because his guide was there waiting for him, calling him in the right direction faithfully. And let me just say this, Jesus is there. And he is ready to be the perfect guide to pull you in the right direction. He's not just the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the savior of our hearts and he is a good, good guide. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words that you wrote in Hebrews 12. Thank you for the fact that, God, you are our good, good guide. And we know that we can be faithful in you above all else. God, I pray this morning that we would be people who don't just hear these words and forget them, but that we would be people who meditate on this truth and that you, and that you use God, I pray that everyone in this room tonight would walk out of here and be convicted by something and lay something down to actually choose to do so, to actually choose to lay something down, some weight, some sin that's been hindering us, that's been holding us back. God, I pray that people would choose to do that today in this room. Lord, and I pray that people would choose to fill that time with, an, with looking to you above all else above the distraction, above organizations, above tests, above anything that's pulling our attention. I pray, God, that we would look to you, to Jesus, the founder of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. God, thank you for enduring the cross on our behalf. Lord, we, we love you, and I pray that this would be a time that we can respond worshipfully, not just saying words, but, but singing truth that we believe, God. 
let the, let the praise and the worship in this room right now be glorifying to you. God, we love you and pray all of this in Jesus' name.